This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Point Nemo. Ben Riggs on Slaying the Dragon. The Fred Harvey Company. And Gerald Gardner. beginning to look a lot like weirdness. Yes, weirdness in July. Weirdness seems to start earlier every year. Especially on Kickstarter, where the weird little elf game from Atlas has everyone in the weirdness spirit. Santa's elves are working hard to finish all the toys in Santa's workshop. But something isn't right. The elves are acting very strangely. Rumor has it a terrible imp has snuck into the workshop to sabotage the toys and ruin Christmas. In weird little elf players take turns being Santa who poses a question for the others to answer. The other players are elves, although one is secretly an imp who follows a special rule that could give it away. The first player to accuse the imp correctly three times wins. Weird little elf comes in a cute palm-sized box that looks like a gift wrap present. Perfect as a stocking stuffer. Get your holiday shopping done early. And efficiently. Give one to everyone in your family and buy enough for all your co-workers, teachers, and daycare staff. Order one for each of your gamer friends, you know they don't already own it, and keep one for yourself. This fast and easy family party game is the perfect, not boring activity for your next holiday gathering. Playable with practically any group, any size, any age. A light social deduction game where the imp is a hidden role that non-gamers and even young kids can handle with funny physical tells like scratch your nose and cross your eyes. Weird Little Elf is on Kickstarter from July 12th until August 11th. Learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut, where no one, no one's here, Robin. The players, the players aren't here. I mean, uh, is it too much to ask that they come over to our place just your, your once? Your battle map, Ken, it, that's just a blue tablecloth. Where's your battle map? Uh, that is the battle map, Robin, because the gaming hut today responds to a question from beloved Patreon backer Alden Strock, who asks, how would you use Point Nemo, the oceanic pole of inaccessibility, in a TTRPG scenario? And then, excitedly, answers his own question. So really, just reading Alden Strock gets us halfway there. He does a bunch of research for us. Which, he does. Uh, yes. These days, Apple for teaching. <laughs> do our work for us. Right. Yeah. yeah. Just do your own show. By now, you, you, should, you should understand how this works. Anyway, Alden continues, the farthest point of land anywhere on Earth, more than 1,600 miles away in every direction. The humans who regularly come closest to Point Nemo are the astronauts on the International Space Station, a mere 250 miles above. And speaking of the International Space Station, that's where it's headed once it gets decommissioned, just like the rest of the nearly 300 spacecraft we've crashed into Dread Cthulhu's backyard. Did I forget to mention? Well, yeah is canonically only about 200 miles from Point Nemo, which is to say it's slightly closer than the space station ever gets. Alden, I feel like, can make his own TTRPG scenario with all this. He's he's motivated. He cares deeply. He's obviously done the research. Alden, 
you don't need to listen to this segment. You can just say, here, guys, I told you Point Nemo was cool. So, Robin? Well, for the benefit of everyone else, though, I don't think they've quite put everything together. Right. So, first of all, as we've established, it's the the point that's furthest away from any, any other land. Nemo is Latin for no one. And, of course, is a Jules Verne reference, a Captain Nemo reference. And if you're going to ask, where is the middle of nowhere going to be discovered? Uh, well, the answer is here in Canada, because uh, survey engineer Hervoye Lucatella, who was uh, using a computer program in 1992, figured out where this spot is that's so far away from everything else that it's uh, there's just ocean, nothing else yep. around there. All. And therefore, you know, except for good old Cthulhu, who I hear is sleeping and it's hard to wake up, yep. uh, nothing much appears to be uh, going on there. So, of course... How do we send our, our heroes to the middle of nowhere? Well, well, Ken, where where would they start? Where would the land that's closest to it be in order to get our, our characters started? Right. Well, the spot, for those who are dialing things up on their Googles or their maps, is uh, 49 uh, degrees 1 minute south, 123 degrees 26 minutes west. So if you imagine the South Pacific, we're talking about the Southeast Pacific, the most distant bit of the Pacific, the closest point of land to the east is Moto Nui, which is the large islet southwest of Easter Island. Uh, it's the center of the Birdman cult, where uh, every year uh, the young men of Easter Island, one from each clan, would uh, gather and then they would race for mana in the form of bird eggs because the sooty tern lays their eggs on the tippy top. The island is basically just this spindle of mountain coming up out of the Pacific. They lay their eggs up on the top, and just as we've learned on a previous episode, which I'm sure we will insert at some later time, haha, uh, you know, hunting eggs is its own magical weirdness, so maybe that's a place, maybe that's how we're jumping off, is the uh, the Birdman cult last hunted eggs in the 1880s, and then they gave it up, uh, you know, one, de- one assumes under missionary pressure, they're like, stop doing sacred, dangerous things that are not prescribed by us yes in, in 1880 it would not have been concerned for the birds no it was not the birds it was the immortal souls of the bird cultists yes the same missionaries probably then went up and collected all the eggs yeah they probably the did turn but, extinct you know no, no, the city turn is still you know flapping around there um and in fact they're you know all manner of uh nature preserve around moto nui now there's also a little village it's it's a fine tropical island congratulations city turn for surviving human contact (laughs) right well that being able to fly thousands of miles away is not a trivial part of surviving human contact for turns or anyone else quite frankly so the closest point to the south is maher island or mare island i don't know how uh maher pronounces last name it's off marie birdland in antarctica and that name should tell you that it was the part of antarctica charted by admiral bird america's First line of defense against the UFO. And of course, Admiral Byrd did in fact chart it during Operation High Jump in 1947, which, as we all know, was uh, the American Navy smiting the Antarctic space Nazis in their saucer craft. So we have that going for us. So maybe some sort of jump off from high jump gets you uh, north into the distant Pacific. And the last part of the triangle is uh, on the west side is Ducey Island, which is the farthest east of the Pitcairn Islands group. And though I tried manfully, I could not find any eleptonic significance of Ducey. It's just an island, and it's so boring that America and Britain both claimed it, and then they were like, 
No, we, you know, if, if you wanted to settle it, I guess that would be fine. And the British are like, no, if you wanted to mine guano on it, I guess that'd be all right. And eventually we passive aggressive the British into saying, I guess that's part of Pitcairn and we have to own Pitcairn because the mutiny on the bounty guys all went to Pitcairn. So because they rebelled against the king's authority, they, you know what? The Americans did not pursue that thought, but technically Ducey Island is British. And now it, like Motunui, is a, is a bird sanctuary, basically. And so good for it. And, and is baked into the premise. These three places are all hellaciously far from everywhere <laughs> from this point that we're talking about. Right. Yeah. But five years after it was pinpointed in 92, in 1997, I guess then oceanographers from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said, well, now that we know there's a middle of nowhere, let's go and find out what it sounds let's like. Let's pester it. <laughs> and uh, there's also some notion that there's less sea life there than yeah. one would normally expect. And so they went to record what was there. And what they recorded was the bloop, which is the loudest underwater sound ever recorded. And uh, initially, the thought was, was this some sort of marine animal? It could be like a whale, but not a known whale. So in other words, the initial thought when the bloop was heard in 1997 was giant sea cryptid. Now, of course, that's their initial thought. My initial thought was, oh, Cthulhu is snoring. Well, okay, but what is Cthulhu but a giant sea cryptid? Well, I guess, I mean, he's not really a cryptid per se. Well, anyway, we can go back and forth and around and around as to whether or not uh, having a face full of tentacles makes you a sea serpent or a kraken. But anyway, people got very excited about the bloop. You can still find the bloop online and listen to it if if that, you know, uh, boils your ostrich. But it turns out that the NOAA, just like every arm of every government everywhere, is devoted to ruining everything. And they said, no, it, it's an iceberg. It was an iceberg making that noise. Now, I am not a degreed sonologist, Robin. I don't professionally bloop read, but my theory is that if it was an iceberg, we would have heard that noise literally everywhere else in the Antarctic, Antarctic Ocean, right? Right, because ice quakes are yeah. a, a known phenomenon. They happen a lot. Right, I mean, it can either be a frozen seabed uh, cracking, or it can be a uh, uh, icebergs themselves, which I think was the explanation here, and there have been some guilty-looking icebergs that have been pointed yeah. at as mm -hmm. being responsible for this noise. But I share your skepticism, Ken. Yeah, thank um, you. Thank I you, guess Robin. the counter-argument of these fun runers would be if there are ice quakes, and if ice quakes make a noise, there has to be a loudest ice quake ever, and this just happens to have been it. Just, um, and just I think it's also part of the fun running is you're saying, well, it's part of the way the sound waves are amplified over time, and so that if you go far away from anything else... Uh, into this acoustic dead zone, it seems louder than it would be if they'd recorded it in some other uh, more In a place where there's whales and boats and people. Right. right. And so there's nothing to, to deflect the sound. And so it's essentially an, an amplifier. But we already said giant sea cryptid. Yeah. And we're sticking by that, quite frankly. Yeah. And so presumably your adventure is you are told there's a giant sea cryptid. And I think you probably want to i would want to do this outside within the horror adventure or just the you know modern day adventure but outside of the, the cthulhu frame because you know if you're going there and you already think it's cthulhu you would then need a misdirect right right and 
any misdirect that isn't Cthulhu will be an annoying misdirect. Yeah. Right? If you just find out it's Dagon, mm-hmm. that's just annoying. Or, you know, some sort of sentient Voltron made out of all the spaceships that fell and got activated by Cthulhu's dream endings. That's actually not a terrible yeah, that's, answer. That, that would be fine. Yeah. We could do that. Yeah. We could even, yeah. But I think we're looking at a, a, a situation where the characters know about Lovecraft fiction and are able to make the reference to Rilia and then they get there and it's uh, something else. And I, I think if there's an previously unknown sea cryptid that is so big, so loud that it's moving around, sounds like the largest ice quake ever recorded, but aren't we looking at the world serpent, Ken? Isn't this exactly uh, within the purview of one of your other uh, settings? It could be a, a day after Ragnarok moment where the Midgard serpent is, uh, his belly is scraping against the bottom of the ocean down there. Maybe that's where he coils up. Uh, the, the, as you mentioned, it's a remarkably life-free part of the ocean. People say that's because it's so far from land that there's no fertilizer runoff from land. And by fertilizer, I just mean soil, not actual fertilizer necessarily. But that's what, you know, tiny fishes and planktons and things feed on is stuff that pours off the land. The bottom of the ocean is literally a desert. And this is the biggest bottom of the ocean ever. So many, many fewer life forms, but maybe that's actually because the Midgard serpent has been eating them. And it's also part of what's called the Great South Pacific Gyre, which is a gigantic current that spins around and around that uh, Point Nemo. It's sort of like outlined by this immense circular current. Well, what is that current maybe doing except running into the spine of uh, the Midgard Serpent, who's sleeping there uh, all coiled up like a snake sleeps? He's not, you know, throttling the earth because it's not Ragnarok yet, but... He's down there having a nap. And actually, the notion of sending people down there on a modern day expedition and they all expect it to be Cthulhu and the reveal is it's, you know, Midgard Sjormer is actually kind of funny. Uh, right, because that that is not a step down from Cthulhu. Right. No, no. The German Gonder is a is definitely a peer to Cthulhu, I would say. In that he was, just like Cthulhu, a myth about how the world is going to end and how nothing we do can stop it. I mean, the Vikings, you know, Lovecraft avant la letter in many ways. So uh, I, I think our premise is that actually, you know, the, the Midgard Serpent almost wakes up on sort of a cyclical level, on sort of a, yeah. on the regs mm-hmm. and uh, looks for uh, stuff to devour and then goes back to sleep. And you want to make sure that they go back to sleep. And it turns out that you need to sacrifice it's inconvenient and ethically dodgy but you know it is the whole world at stake mm-hmm. and you have to sacrifice somebody to the midgard serpent i don't know every 33 years what what sort of number would the midgard serpent respect i don't know it doesn't matter yeah. for this purpose mm-hmm. but there's some sort of quality that people have that uh, the midgard serpent finds especially satisfying and delicious and so the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, its main job is to find and train and secretly develop people who the Midgard Serpent will want to eat. And you can't be 100% sure. That that took a left turn and a half. <laughs> that the NOAA is, well, you know, we every uh, federal program has a human sacrifice division, but we feel that ours is really the, the most warranted of them. Well, you can't be the only uh, reflexively anti-government person on, on the podcast. <laughs> well, good for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that we could actually even tie that into those spots because 
for example, Operation High Jump spread all the rumors about UFOs because it was actually there to either drop off the last human sacrifice or it was going to try to fight the Midgard Serpent, realized that was terrible. You know, they officially right. lost planes on the expedition. Well, maybe 47 was the last time when it was rising mm-hmm. and uh, the Nazi survivors were uh, going to try and recruit the Midgard Serpent because they figured it was an exponent of National Socialism mm-hmm. and it, it got complicated. Last yeah, time. that was what the Nazis were doing in Antarctica was trying to wake up the Midgard Serpent and yeah. they ruined it. Uh, and maybe... Up until 1884 or whatever, you could keep the Midgard Serpent happy by dropping the sacred black egg from Moto Nui. And so if you're, you know, up there and you're racing up to the top and you run down and the first egg is a black egg, the the elders of Easter Island know that, oh, it's Midgard Serpent year. You've drawn the short straw. You get to get in your canoe and paddle you know, do Southwest forever until you and the egg drop into the ocean. And then the Midgard serpent will be happy and he won't destroy the world. And, you know, the good Easter Island folks were keeping, uh, keeping control of it and only killing like one person every, you know, a couple of few decades. And uh, then, you know, the government gets involved and now the death toll goes up. And so, you know, they're sending six people just to be sure they, they got the right one, but Mm -hmm. you can be the six people on the submarine adventure. And, uh, you know, the exciting climax of what is undoubtedly a one shot, because I don't think there's a yeah. second adventure that this group of uh, characters can have yeah. is to determine. Part you two, know, they go to the moon to fight Garm the wolf. Yeah, is uh, to determine which of you uh, is the one that is, uh, you know, best qualified to be eaten mm-hmm. and uh, how to get you out of this up. So it just eats them and you can have that sort of uh, internal conflict or, you know, do you try to find some other way out and. uh you could even have a happy ending where it turns out, you know, you just sort of marry the Midgard serpent and you go and live and be happy and yeah. put them in serpent town for like, uh, like years or whatever. So yeah. I, I think that's a couple left turns. Mm-hmm. That's a, a Cthulhu misdirect that isn't disappointing. I think we've done our work here. Ken. When, when we we've moved on. past Voltron, we know that something was indeed living there at uh, the point of inaccessibility and it was fun. Fun lived there. Once we've found fun, let's leave it alone with its new bride. Certainly fun and or the Midgard Serpent don't need to be disturbed any further. Let's listen to a beautiful ad and then who knows what might happen. One of us might even talk to somebody else. Could be. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt to recruit a vampire. Yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries. For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the ring of Dracula either, or 13th age style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a hand of glory, or red mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions, 
and the Cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. It's time once again for Ken and or Robin to talk to someone else. And today it is I, Ken, who is talking to Ben Riggs, teacher, gamer, historian, and holder of the heretical opinion that Dracula Dossier is the finest role-playing game campaign ever written. As you know, on this podcast, we hold no brief with that heresy being a firm massive Neolithotep stands. But, you know, we're open to all opinions, no matter how radical, no matter how wild. And today, Ben has got a book. Well, not today, today. It, it drops. J- July 19th, you'll be able July to get July 19th. That's either in the distant future or the wonderful past. Uh, he drops Slaying the Dragon, a secret history of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, ben Riggs, welcome to the program. Hi. Tell us, tell us about your heresies. Tell us about your book. Oh, tell well, us about Ben Riggs. I, I have to engage on masks versus Dracula dossier before anything sure else, regrettably. Sure yeah. Um, because I, I then went to You should play- be pilloried by all decent people for that opinion. <laughs> well, I, I played, ma- I, I ran masks uh, based on your recommendation. Yeah. And while I think it was enjoyable and uh, it was good fun, everyone had a great time, people were eaten, rocket ships were blown up, but it's a bit like watching Flash Gordon after seeing Star Wars. I, I can see how the the former influenced the latter, and I can see how there is masks in in Dracula dossier, but you you really took it a, a step further. And maybe if I had done it in a different, maybe if I'd done it in the the order that you did it mm-hmm. and done masks first, I, I might have that opinion. But the the rate of good ideas in the Dracula dossier is just so incredibly high. Plus, the replayability of the campaign, I believe, gives it an edge over masks, my good All sir. All right. All right. That's that's uh, that's the shape of the heresy in Slaying the Dragon. You've got I don't know if it's as heretical or maybe it's differently heretical. But as I was reading it, I almost got the sense that you had kind of a soft spot for Lorraine Williams, who is traditionally the Darth Vader of this saga. And as you, uh, you know, lay out the just ridiculous dysfunction and fecklessness of the pre-Lorraine order, I think you made the argument, and stop me if I'm putting words in your mouth, or taking words out of your book and then putting them in your mouth, that Lorraine basically saved Dungeons & Dragons for us. And if she hadn't come in, it would have been rubble by the side of the road and owned by some subsidiary of Disney or something. And we'd never hear of it now. You you could, you could argue that Lorraine Williams saved Dungeons and Dragons twice. And again, my book mostly focuses on the Lorraine Williams era from 85 to 1997 and explains, you know, how it came to be bought by Wizards of the Coast. Cause I thought I knew that story. So in, in what was supposed to be one article for geek and sundry, on the failure of TSR and its sale to Wizards of the Coast, which bloomed into three articles, which then became a 100,000 word book. Right. One of the opinions I really had to revise was that, that grim view of Lorraine, because while 
you can lay the failure of TSR in 1997 at her feet. A, I had lots of people argue that she, she saved it in 1985 because for, if you don't know, in 1985, people were on pay deferments. TSR was in grim financial health. And while Gary Gygax was in charge, his great genius was not in running TSR, his great genius was as a game designer. Um, well, so, there's, a, there's room to push back on that too, but yeah, let's keep going. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. I, I, I kind of want to ask about that, but well, uh, I mean, we'll get to it. Just okay. Keep, okay. Keep, uh, keep defending Lorraine before we blaggard Gary. Okay. Sounds good. So in 1985, when she took over TSR in, in what is fairly described as a hostile takeover, she took over the company in October. And by Gen Con, everyone had received their back pay with interest. Someone described her as an adult in the room who could talk to banks. And I had people tell like John Ratliff, who was an editor at TSR in the 90s. And a said, terrific fantasy critic. Yeah, that, that too. John Ratliff. He, yeah. yeah, he is the, the foremost Tolkien scholar of our age. It's probably fair to say. Take that, John Shipley. <laughs> Ratliff. Shots fired by Ben Riggs. Nothing but heresies today. <laughs> Ratliff said that everyone he talked to who worked at TSR when it was helmed by Gary and when it was helmed by Lorraine said that they preferred working under Lorraine. That, well, again, Gary was a great game designer, in their opinion, that there was more constancy and reliability underneath Lorraine. Furthermore, a lot of the amazing products that came out of TSR during the Williams era, those amazing box sets, those box sets that had CDs in them. Ravenloft, um, the single best TSR adventure. Yeah. And uh, th those Dark Sun adventures with flipbooks, they were essentially, a lot of them were produced at a loss for TSR, which oftentimes they didn't figure out until afterwards. Yeah. But, but Lorraine Williams functionally subsidized my adolescence by producing Dungeons and Dragons material at less than cost. Now, that's terrible for the long-term health of a corporation. We're, we're beginning to see the the uh, the secret history behind 2005. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, again, we got amazing products that will exist forever be because of those decisions. Uh, because again, there was a commitment on her part to producing things that looked good. The Encyclopedia Magica is the, the the touchstone I always have. The Encyclopedia Magica, you will recall, was an attempt to put together a comprehensive volume of all magic items in the history of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. uh, it was produced in four volumes from TSR. It came with a leatherette cover with gold embossed pages and a, a, a bookmark. And it sold really well, but it was discovered that the price point was not high enough and the company didn't really make any money on it. And when Wizards of the Coast reprinted it, it was just basically a paperback book. Yeah, no, I, uh, I remember uh, the contrast and being someone who has uh, been in parts of the room with some of the people involved had a sort of an idea of why that would be the case. So, yeah, I mean, you've got someone who basically comes in, saves TSR, and then through a different version of dysfunction, drives it into a wall is, I guess, the, the story not out of malevolence. And if it's malevolence, really, it's malevolence of the kind that, you know, almost uh, in, in your reading too generous a malevolence that she didn't, you know, yank the leash and, uh, you know, keep the designers in a, in a cellar or anything like that. You could certainly say that there was a, a lack of discipline. And uh, again, in, in 
David M. Ewald's volume, Lorraine said that she didn't 100% understand the product the company was making. And I think that um, has always been the crack on Lorraine, is that she really, in, in her heart, thought they were making Buck Rogers comic books and would occasionally say, why aren't we making Buck Rogers comic books? And that yeah. would be sort of the, 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 the glory and the wonder of Lorraine Williams. So you brought up uh, David E. Walt. I will trump you with John Peterson. Oh. Um, obviously, uh, I've read your book. I've read John Peterson's book on the slightly earlier uh, ruction, the, the breakup of Dave and Gary and the takeover of the company by the Bloom Brothers. John is a neo-Gary revisionist of a sort, whereas I, as you know, am a sacristan of the Church of Dave Arneson. So my thought has basically always been, and although I've read John's book and your book, I haven't read a lot to disprove my theory, is that Dave Arneson was the great game designer. Gary was a gifted typist who also <laughs> was able to apply modifiers connecting Dave's insights to the sort of uh, basic war game background that he grew up knowing. But in terms of actual game design, qua game design, my thesis is he didn't do a ton of it. Obviously, the book, as you say, is not really about that, but uh, feel free to uh, push back while we're talking. So, I, I, I again, I, I, I will tell you, first of all, that Peterson is my primary source for everything before 1985. Yeah, uh, as, he, as he is. He's the, the Francis Parkman of that era, really. Yeah. But I, I would tell you that, you know, my, my opinion would be as follows, that Dungeons and Dragons without Gary Gygax would be Dave Arneson just running awesome campaigns. Yeah, Dave Arneson's in the home campaign. It never would have gotten out of yeah. that room in Minnesota. That's, yeah. I think, absolutely fair and accurate. But and, you know, ahead, there's a difference between Jesus and St. Paul. Let's just leave it there. <laughs> I mean, I would, however, point to some things that, as I understand it, are both uniquely Gary and probably inherent to Dungeons and Dragons, like the alignment system with lawful good, neutral evil, like that yep, yep. appears only in advanced Dungeons and Dragons, yep. as I recall. It's not in D&D. Again, my um, argument is not that Dave made no contributions or Gary made no contributions. My argument is that those were epiphenomenal to the greatness of game design and that you can detect this by looking at all of his other game designs. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would ask you this question then to, to, to push back on you a little bit. Although again, we're outside of my playground, but uh, man, those, those guys that made that secrets of Blackmore movie, they really seem to think it's Dave Wesley. They, they think they seem to think that, you know, Dave Arneson took everything from Dave Wesley. And then uh, Gary Gygax took everything from Dave Arneson and that, you know, Dave Wesley up there in, in Minnesota is the actual founder of D and D because of it was Brownstein. They pronounced it that way, as I recall. Um, But do you have any thoughts on that? My theory is that Dave Wesley did a magnificent job of formalizing something that had basically been in the water via the Bronte sisters and Fritz Leiber and Harry Fisher, which is iterative world building. And that Dave Wesley's great sort of contribution was to formalize that for Midwestern nerd consumption and that Dave Arneson is the guy that takes it and drives it individual, right? That you are the cleric, you are the wizard, you are the king. This is what we're going to do. It's not about national war college decision-making. It's about literally playing a character. 
And that Gary then says, but what if also war game? And then <laughs> the magic happens at that point. I'm, I am happy to hear the Bronte sin- uh, sisters name checked here, though, because I think that uh, this uh, this podcast has always been a pro Bronte podcast. I believe that <laughs> you can go back to the beginning and never find a harsh word said about any of them, except, of course, uh, Bronson, who we all hate or Branwell, rather. So, yeah, in the book, it, it's called A Secret History. I don't necessarily I think that's smacks of being a publisher title. Are there other? secrets that you uncovered that would boggle and baffle a gassed podcast audience? So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that it, it warrants that because it was certainly finding out things that I didn't know. And again, this is a story I thought I knew. Well, I mean, I, I, I can read a lot of books that then by that definition are the secret history. Yeah, I mean, fair, fair enough. The, the secret um, history of physics. <laughs> <laughs> really? But again, like uh, this is the first time you get the full story of TSR West in one place, which was TSR's attempt to start a comic book company and in the process going into competition with their licensee DC Comics, which probably was an epically bad decision from the point of view of 2022, where DC comic movies are making billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. You hear the full story of how TSR decided not to make a Middle Earth setting in the early 1990s. I got actual sales numbers for Dungeons and Dragons. That's, I mean, we, we talk and we have fun with the personalities, but I mean, this is an actual book of history in the real sense of it. You, you go to source documents, you, you build a narrative, you, you know, tons of on the ground interviews. This is not one of those, you know, I'm going to pad out the Wikipedia page with my own thesis, whatever it is. This is, this is a genuine work of exploration. And again, you, you bring up the, uh, the uh, random house situation. I was fortunate enough to hear that not quite from the horse's mouth, but I was the, the literal fly on the wall when Greg Stafford turned his uh, Bonaparte eyes on Peter Adkison and said, what really happened with TSR? And Peter was therefore forced mesmerically to tell him. And so I, I knew the outlines, but it's amazing to see someone, you know, go out, dig it up nail it down, put it all down in black and white. And that I think is the real, I mean, the real triumph of the book. I mean, you know, art is a vital part of what we do. It's why Robin does it certainly, but without commerce, we couldn't keep the lights on. And they're both, you know, very important. I think in any uh, creative industry, and certainly they're important in role-playing and it's kind of weird. Part of our crazy retrograde paste eating kids affect that we haven't had, real business histories of this uh of this industry for what seems like a remarkably long time so future johns peterson and david's ewalt will owe you a great thanks and then anyone who's interested in why is D still a thing i think is going to get a lot of good information out of the book any any final uh smoke bombs to leave before you batman out of here wow uh, i'm, I'm going to say Peter Adkison told me he learned things from my material, which was very flattering. And I was shocked at the access I had to primary source materials that people just sent me stuff. Again, like sales numbers that had been in basements for decades. Letters from Dave Arneson to Peter Adkison begging to be given a job at TSR. And uh, again, people just gave them to me. And I didn't expect that kind of a response from the subjects of the book. But everyone seemed to want to get this story out there. And I think it does give you a, a, a unparalleled glimpse into what was really going on in the gaming industry in the 1990s. It absolutely does that. I guess the only Marilyn Monroe's mole is that you still never got to talk to Lorraine Williams, despite being really her 
best counselor and most noble defender as a result of the book. Is there, is there a question that you'd ask her if you got like, she was in an elevator with you type situation? I, I will tell you that uh, I, I've had people tell me that I, I was too generous to Lorraine. I don't think that's true, having read the book. Again, the, the, uh, there's a lot of animus on the part of people who work for her. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. There's clearly a lot of people that really hated her and maybe maybe, maybe she deserved to be hated. But if I got her in an elevator, I would want to know if the random house situation was actually being made clear to her was she actually because again she's she's a wealthy lady who bought tsr she as i understand it did not have a business degree but she'd done work in nonprofits. and well, as ceo nonprofits, the best possible training for working in the game industry <laughs> <laughs> and as ceo she liked hearing yes she definitely liked yes men and it, and it would not be the uh, biggest, most ridiculous disaster, even of the 1990s. And of course, in our new century, we've discovered new ways to uh, shout and kill and uh, flame with ecstasy yeah. uh, in business as in everything else. So with that, Ben Riggs, thanks so much for writing the book. Thanks for coming on. And I don't know how we top this, hopefully with a commercial, maybe with another <laughs> segment. <laughs> The best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast supplied with bird egg mana by joining such far-traveled Patreon backers as... Ben Vincent. Chad Ward. Dan Simons. Martin Rundqvist. And Matthew Baskerville. The clatter of silverware, the smell of delicious stew coming off the stove, the shouts of the waitresses as they clear the table for another trainload of passengers tells us that we're not just in the food hut, but we're in a food hut in the American West in the latter part of the 20th century because everything's so clean and beautiful and spotless and the, oh, we get a whole quarter of a pie each, Robin, that's pretty nice. We must be talking about America's own Fred Harvey Company, creators of the Harvey House Restaurants, the first restaurant chain in america sadly not the first restaurant chain in the world the aerated bread company beats it by 14 years in london but still right. the fred harvey company a beautiful historical what do we want to call it, snack 
right? Yeah. I, when I heard that this was America's first chain restaurant, I just thought, I bet there's an interesting cultural history here. Let's <laughs> write it down in the script. And <laughs> guess what? Of course, there's an interesting cultural history here. And it involves the railroads, the taming of the West, and uh, so much else. And uh, like so many other great Americans, uh, Fred Harvey comes from somewhere else. Yep. He uh, comes from London, and uh, he ar arrives in New York in uh, 1853. L like many other entrepreneurs, he uh, gets himself in a business, learns some stuff, goes broke, and learns some lessons. Right, Ken? Yeah. The lesson that I would have learned... Uh, is in fairness, not the lesson that Fred Harvey learned. He uh, worked in a restaurant, found a, uh, that he had a skill, a uh, gift for it, moves west to start his own uh, restaurant in St. Louis. Uh, and the thing that he said that he learned is, I can size up a man and make a handshake deal with him and go on. And of course, what happened is his partner in St. Louis stole all his money and went to fight for the Confederacy. So he says, all right, all right. That happens. He gets a job with the railroads, moves to Leavenworth, Kansas. He's you know traveling back and forth for a bunch of different regional railroads. Uh, he hates railroad food, which at that time was god awful, and uh, says, like "You know what? A true businessman, he spots an opportunity. Exactly. He noticed something sucks, and he decides to make it suck considerably less. Right. Uh, as opposed to you know a, a developed big corporate company, which is." How can we make more money by making this suck by more? making it he suck just enough? Right. Yeah. So he um, makes another handshake deal with a guy uh, to open up restaurants along the Kansas Pacific Railroad in 1873. And you'll never guess what happens, Robin. The, the guy reneges on the handshake. The partnership comes apart. Once more, he's left destitute. But the third time, Robin, turns out to be the charm. He makes a handshake deal. I, I guess his problem was he hadn't made a handshake deal with rich enough people, was his thought. But he makes another handshake deal with the owner of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad to run its Topeka lunchroom in 1876. He basically tears it down, rebuilds it from scratch, buys all new plates and silverware and tablecloths and linens, which impresses the owner of the railroad that he would do all that on a lunchroom that he, you know, is in theory just managing. And of course, you know, once he's insisting the food not be terrible, more people eat at the Topeka lunchroom. Right. The president of the railroad is impressed. And he says, can you do this with every lunchroom on the railroad? And Harvey says, well, what I can do is open restaurants all along the railroad. As long as I do it in the railroad right of way. And therefore you don't charge me rent. And also, if you ship all my food to me, to my restaurants, in your railroad cars for free, then I feel like we can keep margins way down <laughs> and uh, pass the savings along to the customer in the form of delicious food. And in fact, the food was vastly better than... Yeah, when you're talking about it being the food and previously being terrible, we mean like, like rancid meat. And part of that is the difficulty of shipping, but also the previous restaurant owners were like, these people are captives. Exactly. They'll eat anything, including, you know, this dead stock that I have lying here. Whereas Harvey's whole approach is, let's make this the best experience ever, where, you know, it's like fine dining. There's beautiful linens and fine silver. He buys fine china and makes a big fuss. And the presentation is part of it. So he does all of those classic things that are all part of a great restaurant early 
And he does it again and again and again every hundred miles yeah. along along the way. Yeah, uh, winds up with a, at a peak. He has eighty four Harvey House restaurants. He will show up because it's a, on the railroad, so he will get on the railroad and ride to a random one. Show up, and if everything's not to his satisfaction, he'll tear the place up. He would famously like overturn tables that weren't set correctly. Yes, he was notorious for being able to spot a little the one speck of dirt that people mm-hmm. had uh, failed to notice. So in in a way, he's sort of I, I guess it's like you know. The the Jamie Oliver of the 1880s, except actually producing good things for people. But that was his, it was his vibe was that he was very insistent that everything, you know, match out correctly. He had his own dairies so that the milk would be fresh and he'd put those at strategic spots in the railway. One of the pieces of China that he would buy is a blue plate. Uh, and you could order the blue plate special. That may have been the origin of the term. And that was the sort of, bacon and eggs or other sort of standard fare that you got for the cheapest price you could if you were in a super hurry and you d- didn't have a lot of money so that third class passengers could eat at a Harvey house and feel like they were just as fancy as everybody else. Cause they got to eat on a blue plate. Yep. And again, this was in the post McDonald's era. This does not seem as startling to us, but in the West, it made a huge, huge impression that someone would actually clean the plates and serve good food and do it on purpose over and over again. Uh, Will Rogers famously called Fred Harvey, the man that fed the West. Um, and he said that he should be on the dime. If they're going to have a Buffalo on the nickel, you should have a Harvey girl, which was the waitresses that he hired on the dime. And uh, the Harvey girls started in 1883. It was a core of young waitresses that they recruited. They had to be young and unmarried. It was not a Hooters situation. They were wearing very sort of plain, you know, uh, housekeeper type uniforms. And then they would sign a contract. And at the end of that contract, they would be paid basically half their salary as a lump sum bonus. And then they would take that and go get married on that money. And so was super attractive to young women who lived in boring places in Missouri and Kansas, which, you know, Newsbreak was everywhere in Missouri and Kansas. And they would uh, go out, they would serve their term as a Harvey girl, they would have met ideally a, a, a pleasant and delightful customer on the train, and then off they go. Uh, so about 5,000 Harvey girls rotated through the Harvey chain during Harvey's lifetime. I mean, the reason that they did this was that Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe didn't want to have dining cars. They figured, if we're just stopping the train anyway, you can eat at a Harvey house, we don't have to put a dining car on our train. But by 1892... Customers everywhere demanded dining cars, so ATNSF eventually started putting them on their trains, and then Harvey got the contract to run those dining cars. Right, and it was a big selling point for them that they had the Fred Harvey Company. That yeah. was part of their advertising. Mm-hmm. It was something like, you know, you'd, you'd be Harvey fed all the way to the coast, and then he started moving into other things, so he got the contract for the ferry in San Francisco, so if you were taking the ferry that was at the train station going out to one of the islands or across the bay, you'd be eating a Harvey meal on the ferry. And at the other end of the ferry, there'd be a little Harvey lunchroom there. He started selling postcards. Uh, Some of the Harvey houses were in such remote areas, they became little hotels. He dies in 1901. Although the dining car is cut into the Harvey business model, there were still 47 Harvey houses and 15 Harvey hotels. His last words were, cut the ham thinner, boys. (laughs) which is you know and i think in the in the legendary people have said don't cut the ham too thin but you and i both know this was not a man who was not concerned with uh, keeping the bottom line correctly uh buttressed right 
So I was trying to find a, a sort of a sample menu to look at and talk about. I wasn't able to find any of the ones from the actual Fred Harvey era because it was ephemera, and I'm not sure there even necessarily would have been uh, menus. Yeah, probably would have been chalked up on a slate. The earliest I can find is from 1910, and it's pretty standard of the time elevated uh, fare. So starts off with a caviar canapé. That's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, chicken a la ren. There's the obligatory consomme. Radishes and salted almonds. There's a little bit of a breaker there. And some uh, queen olives. Then a uh, turban of salmon with hollandaise and cucumbers. Then braised sweetbreads. Uh, then prime rib of beef with mashed potatoes, string beans. Roast jumbo squab. And then an asparagus vinaigrette. And then this particular pie available that day was apricot pie, which is a bit of an unusual one. It's a vibe. Other desserts, strawberry ice cream, assorted cakes, and there's a cheese course even. There's yeah. a Roquefort and Caprera and uh, fruit and coffee. This is all listed, I assume, as sort of your picking from each category along the way. But yeah. I could easily, uh, you know... Go back in time to this and have a, a good meal off that menu. Yeah, I feel like, unlike many period menus, you look at that and it's like, yeah, that's probably fine. Bring me one of everything, Harvey Girl. That would be lovely. As I mentioned, they branched out into other depots and other train lines. Chicago's Union Station had a Harvey House, as did Los Angeles's uh, Union Station. And then they built a hotel in the Grand Canyon in 1919 that sort of blossomed out into their next big venture, Harvey's son, Ford Harvey, began to, you know, market tourism, not just at the Grand Canyon stop, but at all the stops throughout the Southwest as sort of an an early form of ethno-tourism. He called them the Indian Detours. Started in 1926, they would be guided tours. The Harvey company would pay area Navajo or Hopi or whoever they were to, you know, do the dance or or, um, uh, explain you know, some ritual people wanted to see Indians. And so they, that was what the market demanded. And then they also sold native handcrafts in gift shops, which was another innovation that the Harvey company formalized. I don't know if they invented the gift shop. There were gift shops in freaking Alexandria in the Hellenistic era, but they formalized the notion of the gift shop where you could buy postcards and you could buy uh, handicrafts and you could buy jewelry and you could buy rugs and all that stuff. And that was in all the Harvey hotels and in all the Harvey Indian detour uh, stops, right? right? And it's all part of an image of taking the West from a wild, scary place to a comfortable place uh, where you can go and enjoy uh, tourism. And part of that is shifting the image of the Navajo and Hopi to treat them as skilled artisans and people with an interesting culture that you wanted to learn about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, of course now open to critique and is part of the the cross-pressured nature of the early days of uh, introducing native arts to various indigenous peoples. But one of the main movers behind this was Fred Harvey's daughter, um, Minnie Harvey Huckle, and a German immigrant named Hermann Schweitzer. Uh, and he's the one who looked at all of the Hopi and Navajo jewelry and went, we could market a lot of this, but it's not quite to the taste of our customers because it's all kind of heavy. Let's make lighter versions of it. And so he, he's the one who designed this native jewelry that they sold and he redesigned it to have sort of more of a Victorian style and make lighter jewelry, but he sold a lot of it. So you go, Oh, well he, you know, bastardized their culture. But at the same time he was collecting and curating and introducing and promoting the work of a generation of early native American artists. So 
and stocked a museum full of stuff. So there's the merch and then there's the art. And he was uh, involved in uh, both ends of that uh, complicated relationship. Yeah. And then uh, in 1946, there was a Judy Garland musical. And so if you are of a certain age and you heard me say Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe up at the top and you began humming, that's where the song came from that you were humming. Yes. There's a sort of that sort of a standard. Less well known is another song from that uh, musical, The Train Must Be Fed. Which, you know, is sort of sounds like you're human sacrificing the Thomas the Tank Engine at that point. But... <laughs> no, that's just the Cardiff version. Right. And then uh, in addition to Union Station, my other sort of hometown connection to the Harvey company is that they're the guys that came up with the idea of the tollway oasis. And in America, and I assume in other countries with toll roads, it is now the practice that you have uh, an area where you can pull off the toll road and you can get food and you can walk on a bridge across the tollway to the other restaurants on the other side of the bridge and then go back and get in your car and stay on the tollway without having to pay the toll to get off the tollway to eat in a town. Well, guess who invented that? The Harvey Company, and they uh, put that in at the Illinois Tollway in 1959, and it rapidly spread to virtually every other toll road structure in America. But as someone who's eaten at many an Illinois Tollway oasis, I have to say, good for you, Fred Harvey Company. Thanks a lot. That was nicely done. Then, as all things must, uh, the Harvey Company went away. It was bought in 1968 by Amfac, and I kept looking and saying it can't have been called Amfac in 1968. That's got to be a modern, you know, 80s name. But no, it was originally the American Factors. It was a retail and sugar company, and it was called American Factors, Robin, because it was seized from its German owner illegally during World War I. So <laughs> fun news uh, for everybody. But anyways, the um, Amfac was expanding from Hawaiian tourism into California tourism, and they bought the chain of hotels that by that time was what the Harvey company was mostly making its money on. And as a result of that, they sort of shut down most of the Harvey restaurants over the next 20 years. And by now there are like three, I think places that you can eat a meal in an old Harvey restaurant. And even then you're not eating a Harvey meal. You're eating a, you know, a Starbucks meal or whatever it happens to be. That's just in that spot. So it shaped and civilized the West shaped our image of the Southwest and of the Native Americans there. And then it was gobbled up by idiot Hawaiian landowners. So that, I guess, is the is the story of the West writ small. Right. And so uh, we don't normally go to much length to get a role-playing scenario at a food hut. Yeah. But you can definitely have your old West characters eat in surprising luxury before they go off yeah. to... Uh, get in a gunfight with a, a Shoggoth wearing a hat or something. Right. Yeah, You can absolutely have any number of, of things as a result. You, you could either set it in sort of a, a siege story that happens at the Harvey house uh, in some remote stretch of New Mexico and they're being uh, attacked by skinwalkers or something. And maybe one or the curios in the, in the gift shop will help you fight the skinwalker. And maybe it's one of the curios that's attracting the skinwalkers who can say, and if you can hold out until the train gets there, you're good. But other than that, all you've got is remarkably clean plates and uh, sharp, beautiful silverware to help you fight off monsters. And I think, what more could you ask? Well, speaking of trains, uh, this train is leaving the station, but I think it might just be heading through a commercial into another hot and or site. Don't 
Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. time once more to wend our way up the creepity cobweb stairs. We're going to pause on the landing. We're going to wave at the painting of the mystical fire salamander. He's going to give us a little wink as always. And then we're going to head on in to the parlor of the consulting occultist who today has gathered at the behest of esteemed backer John Kingdon, who says, speaking of supposedly ancient spiritual traditions that are actually fairly new, could we ask the consulting occultist to discuss Gerald Gardner? and the extent to which he discovered and or created modern Wicca. And the answer is, sure, you can, John Kingdon. Your money spends as good as anybody else, better than some. As with new religious traditions, it is important at the outset to say, as a follower of a religious tradition that is comfortably outside the purview of documentary research, my sympathies to you, Wiccans, but we're going to talk about Gerald Gardner and what the mean old historical record says about him, and that's just what's going to happen. So he's born in 1884 in Lancashire. He's uh, from the upper middle class. His family imports timber. So when he's born, he's sort of inconvenient. And they say, we've got a hot Irish nanny. Let's just give him to her to raise. And we can go on about our business and ignore Gerald Gardner. They've apparently got other sons. They, they got other priorities. So the hot nanny takes him all kind of places, the south of France, anywhere a hot nanny would like to go, and uh, eventually raises him mostly on the island of Madeira, where he first becomes obsessed with collecting swords, because he's, guess what, Robin? He's an adolescent boy being raised by his hot nanny on a remote <laughs> island in the Atlantic. So um, that's where his, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's you've explained everything about Gerald Gardner right there. But anyway, at some point, his family's like, are you still around, Gerald? They send him off to Ceylon to apprentice with a tea planter because they think we maybe could get into importing tea. He sort of, you know, puts up with it. He's not a big fan of tea, but he likes the, the weather because his uh, health is not good, which is part of why the hot nanny was taking him to various warm spots. And he would come back to Britain and rather than hang out with his family, he would go hang out with his disreputable Methodist relations. Um, his family was Anglican, and so Methodists were dangerous weirdos. And in this particular case, uh, they believed in fairies and told him he was a witch. So Methodists, I know, mostly believe in trifle. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I feel like you have a special sort of Methodist. Or, and again, my apologies to anyone out there invested in Gerald Gardner's veracity. Gerald Gardner made up the witch part, and maybe also the fairies. But in 1910, he becomes a Freemason. He basically gets sick of tea, moves to uh, North Borneo to grow rubber. He doesn't like the guy who's the boss of him uh, for a lot of reasons. And he goes and he hangs out with the Dayaks, who are the indigenous peoples of that area of Borneo, and learns that 
in addition to being headhunters, they also have a rich and uh, wonderful culture that is more interesting than rubber planting. But you got to make a living. He goes to Singapore, grows rubber in Malaya, stays interested in local traditions, pretends to convert to Islam to get along with locals. He starts collecting Chris knives. Uh, eventually, he gets enough connections that he become a government bureaucrat inspecting rubber plantations instead of running one. And then he gets added to his purview inspector of the opium stores. And that's where the real money is because he, he collects a bunch of bribes from the opium dealers and becomes rich. So he uh, goes back and forth uh, to the UK. He's an inveterate joiner. So not only has he been a spiritualist and uh, a Freemason, he now starts, you know, hanging out at seances. He gets into sort of uh, the folklore society, goes back to Malaya and does um, what I think uh, nice people call unauthorized archaeology. And the government <laughs> of Malaya, the Sultan of Johor, would call. I think, even, I think people who say that are saying it ironically. Yeah, uh, it would. Uh, the Sultan of Johor would call it tomb robbing. Yeah, but he does that. And he also studies Malay magic. He collects Chris knives. Um, this is an era where John Skeet is basically, you know, laid out the structure of Malay magic for the Western audiences, anthropologically speaking. There's a lot of on the ground anthropology going on. Chris knives have a ritual role as well as a stabity role. So again, you can see where Gardner is coming. Uh, he moves back to London at the fine end of this. He gets married. His wife says, we're not living in Malaya. We're living in London. We're not putting up with any of this nonsense. Right. And so the first thing you do when you move from Malaya to London is you become a nudist. Well, yeah, because London is cold. And so uh, why not take off all your clothes? I don't get it either, but that's what he does. He starts um, pestering real archaeologists, and they mostly put up with him, probably because of his Malayan writing. He gets a phony PhD from a Nevada di diploma mill and starts calling himself Dr. Gardner, which gets up the nose of Catherine Briggs and other leading lights of the Folklore Society. He starts hanging out with Rosicrucians in Hampshire. Uh, he joins the Druids. He joins the Society for Psychical Research. And in 1939, he joins, allegedly, a coven in the New Forest of Hampshire, which is where he has moved to in all of this nonsense. Right. And by allegedly, he says he did this. He says he did this. He says that he joined a coven uh, run by a woman named Old Dorothy Clutterbuck. And this is, he said, well, we've asked and there's no one of that name anywhere in Hampshire. And he says, oh, I changed her name because she doesn't <laughs> want. No one refers to themselves as old. That's someone right. else calls yeah. you that. He says she values her privacy and wants to carry out her age old witch tradition in privacy, which is why I mention it to everyone. <laughs> so in 1940, allegedly, he and the New Forest Coven uh, danced naked in a circle to raise a cone of power to repel Hitler. And I, it would certainly repel me, so I assume it, it works just fine. In 1945, he buys a share of a nudist resort in Hertfordshire and founds his own coven there in 1946. And this is where Wicca begins to have a more of a historical grounding than just what Gerald Gardner says, because he starts recruiting other disciples uh, for his Bricket Wood coven. And he says, by the way, he heard the word Wicca in the New Forest. And he recognized it as the, as the old word for a wise person. And that's why he named his, his religion that, or his practice that. In 1947, he meets a ailing and doddering Alistair Crowley, who no doubt in exchange for hoarded Malayan opium signs a document that Gerald Gardner wrote that says, I, Gerald Gardner, know everything Crowley knows, and I'm the head of the OTO in Europe. And Crowley, you know, signs it, shoots up and dies. 
while Gardner is conveniently out of the country, he writes a novel called High Magic's Aid in 1949, uh, which describes uh, Wicca. His disciple recruiting really begins to pick up in 1953, the sort of the St. Paul of Wicca, uh, Doreen Valiente, who has uh, joined him in 52, begins to edit the crowliest parts out of <laughs> Wicca because... Because smart move. Because, come on. And uh, finally, he writes his sort of full-on version of, of Wicca for the public called Witchcraft Today in 1954, and then runs around being a giant publicity hog. And uh, Doreen Valiente says, this is embarrassing. You're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing me, Doreen Valiente. And he says... We have to let other witches know that the old religion is still alive or else it will die out. It'll die out, I tell you. And um, she says, well, we need guidelines for what kind of nonsense you can just say. And he vomits forth what he calls the Wiccan laws. And she says, no, not stupid guidelines and leaves. And that's the split uh, at the beginning of, of, of Wicca. So Gardnerian Wicca now becomes a thing. And then Doreen Valiente sort of takes her own Wicca tradition. And I feel like most North American Wiccans descend more from the Doreen Valiente don't be an idiot part of Wicca than they do from the, you know, what's fun is if we all get naked and hit ourselves with whips Wicca that Gerald Gardner uh, created. Um, anyway, all good things must come to an end. He's on another ship from another archaeological site in Lebanon. He's in the middle of the Mediterranean, dies of a heart attack. They bury him in Tunisia, which is the next place that the boat stops. That's in 1964, by which point, Wicca is on the cusp because you are naked and you are antinomian, two things the 60s value greatly, um, of blowing up. And uh, that's when the sort of the big witch movement blows up in Britain and America. And suddenly it becomes cool to be out there naked in a field repelling Hitler. Uh, everyone's for that. And uh, Wicca moves on in its own way. I think maybe a lot of Wiccans... They, they're not proud of Gerald Gardner, but they don't want to hear people traduce him. And I'll say, you know, that for a guy who started a cult of nakedness, he only slept with like two people that weren't his wife, as far as anyone knows. So props for restraint, I guess. For not being a flagrant abuser, as yeah. is very common among For not being a hideous groomer. Uh, all the people he slept with were, you know, uh, appropriately aged and uh, high priestess. It was not a you know, come to me, my little flower acolyte type business. Again, the sixties would refine the basic tradition, but, uh, that was Gerald Gardner. Um, he seems like kind of an annoying, odious person, but I guess he must've been great fun because otherwise real archeologists wouldn't have put up with his nonsense. That's my assumption. Right. So you could have him at different periods of period horror in mm -hmm. order to sort of be a fun character, sort of showing up in the early bit, being colorful, not exactly knowing what's going on, but having a way of pointing you toward the thing that's really going on. So in uh, Call of Cthulhu, you could be in uh, Malaya with him, or uh, in the 30s, he's uh, joining every possible organization there is. So anything going on in the occult in uh, in London in the 30s, you could have him uh, show up and make a little uh, cameo appearance. He's got money, so he could be a bookhound's client, certainly. Yeah, uh, he dies before he can... I guess you've got four years to have him show up in uh, Fall of Delta Green, so that's a that's a pretty good span. He can be sort of in his uh, early on in his in his dotage, still being a, a big old publicity hound at that point. And the fun thing is, you can be thinking that you're minding your own business at some archaeological site in Greece or Cyprus or Lebanon, and who shows up but this tottering old guy with his beard braided and a 
disturbing lack of suntan lines. Yes. Who, Boy, I happen to dabble in archaeology yes. myself, especially of an esoteric nature. As a practicing witch, let me assure you that the witch cult had nothing to do with this. Which, of course, means the witch cult had everything to do with this. Yeah, he was a follower of Margaret Murray in, in more senses than one. He absorbed the nonsensical guff about uh, the the burning times from her and from uh, L. Frank Baum's uh, mother-in-law who came up with that as an early feminist screed. He sort of wove that early feminism into the fabric of witchcraft in a lot of ways that other people had not. So I guess that's one of his intellectual contributions, if I may dignify uh, his contributions thusly. And again, in terms of things that are fun, his wife wanted nothing to do with any of it. She was not a nudist. She was not a witch. She was a nice conservative lady who just stayed at home in London and said, all right, you go have fun. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, ignored the whole bit of it. So I feel like Mrs. Gardner would be uh, another great NPC to meet at some point, although I think she dies uh, roughly uh, around the same time that he does. So she's not even a fall of Delta Green, you know, let me tell you about my, my dead husband situation. Can't drop in fun ruin on him. Yeah. But anyway, it's it's a fun, you know, insight into the, into the home life of, of Gerald Gardner in that he was told not to do that nonsense at home. And that's why we have property in uh, Hertfordshire is for you to go be naked and hit yourself. Well, um, a game master character who can show up, be fun to play, be flamboyant, give some information, but not the whole story. What more could you ask for? Right. I think we've uh, done our work here for yet another week, uh, but we'll be back uh, next week with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Don't make us cut the ham thinner. Join such beloved backers as... Michael Bowman. Michael Kewell. Ian Carlson. James Candelino. And Dreaming Johnny. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Unleash the alien big cat with our latest design, Screaming on the Moor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.